open up your Bibles, Luke 13, verses 10 through 21. If you need a Bible, um, raise your hand, we'll get one to you. And while we're getting our, our, our Bibles opened, uh, we'll just say a quick thank you to uh, those of you who were um, uh, involved in uh, the Real Options Walk for Life with us yesterday. It was awesome. Uh, those of you that helped donate, thank you so much. Uh, we were able to raise over $2,000 for them, and it was just a great thing to be a part of the day um, and to walk with so many uh, for uh, such a, a, an important cause in our city. So Luke chapter 13, verses 10 through 21. I'll read it, pray, and then we will uh, dive in. Now he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. And behold, there was a woman who had had a disabling spirit for 18 years. And she was bent over and could not fully straighten herself. When Jesus saw her, he called her over and said to her, Woman, you are freed from your disability. And he laid his hands on her, and immediately she was made straight. And she glorified God. But the ruler of the synagogue, indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, said to the people, there are six days in which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be healed, and not on the Sabbath day. And the Lord answered him, You hypocrites! Does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the manger and lead it away to water it? And ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan bound for eighteen years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day? As he said these things, all his adversaries were put to shame, and all the people rejoiced at all the glorious things that were done by him. He said, therefore, what is the kingdom of God like? And to what shall I compare it? It is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his garden. And it grew and became a tree. The birds of the air made nests in its branches. And again he said, To what shall I compare the kingdom of God? It is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour. Until it was all leavened. Let's pray, guys. God, we recognize that you move in mysterious ways. That you are not like us. And in many ways... The way that you move, the way that your kingdom operates with its values and its functions, it seems to us to be upside down, counterintuitive. You say it confounds the wisdom of man, it looks like foolishness, and yet truly it's the wisdom of God. You say that in Christ, all mysteries, once hidden, are revealed. And he is the king of your kingdom. And Lord, we want this morning to open ourselves up to you. And the possibility of surprise, the possibility of your counterintuitive redemption, Lord, revelation, where we recognize that we so often buy into the world and its values. And we so often find ourselves confused. Unsure of how you're moving, if you're moving at all. We need help understanding your ways. We need help seeing your kingdom. We need help seeing the sun and his glory afresh. So I pray you'd speak. I pray you'd meet us right where we are, right where we come in this morning. Share our burdens, lift them, heal us. In Jesus' name, 
Amen. Um, it, it seems to me that um, one of the most painful, distressing, discouraging um, sort of things we can experience in life is what, what we might call unmet expectations, where you are hoping for, planning for, thinking you're going to get one thing, expecting one thing, and instead you end up with another. This idea of unmet expectations. Um, I wonder if you come in this morning with any of those. I wonder if you come in this morning with that sense of, gosh, I thought my life would be different. But when I became a Christian, I expected X, Y, and Z. And now here I am. How did I get here? No doubt, if not presently, you've at least experienced this sort of thing in one way or another in the past. And um, some examples I, I could imagine for us would be, you know, perhaps you uh, had uh, that job that was just burdening you, just weighing on you. And uh, you kept thinking, gosh, if I could change, if I could just kind of make that career move or that job shift, things will be better. You pray about it. You get a sense that God's leading you into this. You go, yes, we're going to step forward. You put in your two weeks. You move towards this new company. And in a month or two or three, you realize, oh my goodness, it's the same nonsense. I expected it to be this and instead, here I am, in the same mess that I was trying to escape. Unmet expectations. Um, the title of the sermon, What Did We Expect? Um, actually, really, when I put that to paper, I was thinking about uh, Paul Tripp's book on marriage. Uh, the title is, What Did You Expect? <laughs> And uh, some of you remember maybe going through a little bit of that seminar with him. We did that a while ago. But what is he getting at when he names his his book on marriage? What did you expect? I, I think what he's after there is, listen, we are in a culture that is going to tell us through movie and song and every other possible avenue that marriage is the answer. Marriage is going to complete you. Like you find that right lady, you find that right guy, you get on your horse, you ride off into the sunset, the credits roll, and that's it for you. It is joy, unending. Right? And then you get married. And you realize, oh my goodness, this is hard. No doubt there is joy. But oftentimes what you find is the joy that you experience in marriage comes on the other side of a sort of death, self-sacrificial love for the sake of the other. And then you find joy and life and you see the wisdom of God. Some people don't even get there because this is hard. You must not be the one I'm out. This isn't what I expected. Paul tells us, husbands, love your wives like Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Sounds pretty. Sounds nice. He's talking about the bloody, gory, brutal cross. And he's saying, husbands, get on it. You want love, you want, you, you, want a, you want a marriage that's one. Well, that's how I became one with you. So do that for her. Wow, okay. That's not what I expected. And I imagine that there are others who could come at these examples I'm giving from the other direction, right? Where you go, okay, yeah, well. I'd give anything to have a job to complain about. Talk about changing jobs. I'm just trying to get one. I'll put in, you know, 
application after application, lay down my resume, put on my little interview suit, walk in with, with, with my best, you give them my egg game, and I'm rejected again and again. Or, man, I'd give anything to have a spouse to argue with and struggle with. I'm, I'm, I've been praying for a spouse for decades. Where is he? Where is she? I expected God would answer. I expected God would provide. I expected something different than this. Unmet expectations. A lot can happen in the gap that forms between our expectations and reality, right? A lot can happen in that space. We can grow pessimistic in that space. We can grow depressed, bitter, angry, hopeless, depressed. And we're not just dealing with other people in those moments, not just angry, bitter, struggling with other people in those moments. We grow resentful of God in the gap that exists, that forms between what I expected he would do with my life and what's actually playing out down here on the ground. You been there? Gosh, I was reading this this thing uh, the other the other day, and they're talking about you know expectations and things. And there was this study, this scientific study, and one of the things that they said is, "Hey, if you want to be happy, lower your expectations." <laughs> they were saying a lot of our unhappiness comes from expecting more and then realizing it's not, and then the distress is there. So just lower that. They said, "Oh, but actually that has a problem too." We found that the people that expect more are happier up front and then sad later on. The people that don't expect, expect less are, 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 are miserable up front and then happier later on. Can't figure this out, but we're all trying to figure out what to do with this gap. We experience, I think, something of what the author of Proverbs talks about in Proverbs thirteen twelve when he says, Hope deferred makes the heart sick. You just feel sick because you hope for something and it's put off again. Ah, when is it going to come? Why is it not here? I feel sick. I I wonder if anyone in this room is in that place this morning. Our text, I think, here this morning is actually uh, Jesus coming to offer help. Jesus is going to enter into that gap with us, speak and bring healing there. Um, I'm going to look at verses 18 to 21 in particular. I know I read more and I'll explain that to you uh, why or explain why I did that in a moment. But we're going to be looking at verses 18 to 21 in particular, those two parables uh, that you see there. And I want to bring three questions to the table for us to consider. Number one, what should we expect? What should we expect? Not just What did we expect? What should we expect? What does Jesus say here? How can we calibrate our expectation to his revelation? Two, why do we often push back? And then three, how can we bridge the gap? How can we bridge the gap? So let's get to work here. Um, Now, as I just said, I included verses 10 through 17 in this sermon, uh, even though we're dealing particularly with verses 18 through 21. The reason I did that is uh, uh, simply because of the presence of one little word there in verse 18. You see it, therefore. It's Luke's comment on the connection between what's come before and now these two parables. But what we need to understand is Luke is saying, listen, uh, because of something that went down in the synagogue there with this woman and the ruler of the synagogue, this argument that ensued between Jesus and these guys, uh, because of something that went down in the synagogue, Jesus, therefore, gives these two parables about the kingdom. 
There's a connection, and it's going to help us interpret these parables properly, I think. And it's going to shed some light on some of these questions that I have been asking. But if I were to come at the matter simply, I think, and it's why I open up the way that I do here, I think that what we're going to see is that in these parables, Jesus has come to deal with unmet expectations. That one way or another, these guys there in the synagogue, uh, in particular, this ruler, uh, and we know the other leaders in Israel, they're expecting one thing of the Messiah. They're expecting something different. And here he is, and they're going, this can't be it. Not him. Uh-uh. It's like, therefore, let me tell you a couple parables about what the kingdom is really like. Let me try to clear up. I I get it. There's a gap in between what you expected and reality. Let me try to clear that up. Let's try to bridge that gap. Let me try to make some sense of this for you so you can see what the Messiah really is going to be like, what the kingdom of God is really like. I don't want you to miss this, in other words. Now, um, let me dive into these two parables. Uh, Let's look at them again. Let's read verses 18 to 21 one more time. He said, therefore, what is the kingdom of God like? And to what shall I compare it? It's like a grain of mustard seed. Here's parable number one. It's like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his garden. And it grew and became a tree. And the birds of the air made nests in its branches. And again, he said, to what shall I compare the kingdom of God? It's like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour until it all was Leavened. So a parable about seed growing into a tree, a parable about a little bit of leaven that's going to permeate a whole uh, lump of dough. And he said, he just washes his hands and says, that's it. Everything clear now? You say, ah, I'm not so sure. So let me draw out a few things that I think Jesus is communicating here, in particular about the nature of the kingdom of God. He's trying, to, he's trying to explain to us what the kingdom is like. That's why he pulls these images in. So what is the kingdom of God like? I want to, again, calibrate my expectation to his revelation. The kingdom of God, number one, I'll bring three things out from these parables for you to consider. The kingdom of God, number one, it is organic. It's organic in its growth, in its development. Uh, you see this, I think, really in both parables, but particularly in the first one. You have this idea of a seed that goes into the ground and slowly but surely grows into a tree. You have this organic process, this development from seed to tree. So the kingdom is like that. We, we know the same sort of thing comes in the, in, the, in the second parable that it gives, where it's just a pinch of leaven put in there, and it slowly but surely permeates the whole thing. It develops, it grows, but it's not all at once. It's, it's over time. It's sometimes inconspicuous, barely visible. You, you don't even think it's there or doing anything. You're not even sure what's going on. And yet, you come back a year later, you come back a year later, and, and, and you're seeing growth. You're seeing development. All of a sudden there's birds nesting in the tree that once was just this little thing down here. And he's communicating to us with the organic nature of the kingdom. And it's much more organic than anticipated. Um, for a lot in Israel at the time, the idea of the Messiah was he's going to roll in it's going to be this like cataclysmic event where all this stuff is going to happen. He's going to overthrow Rome. He's going to set us up in our land. We were going to be, we're going to be all good again. It's going to be great. It's going to be this, it's going to be like the, you know, the, 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 the heavens are going to clear and it's going to be uh, amazing coming in in power. And instead, Jesus is going, listen, it's going to be like a seed. Like you're not even going to know, you're going to step on it. Not even notice it. Oh, but it's growing and it's advancing. It's gonna be like a little little pinch of leaven. So small. Oh, but it's permeating, it's expanding. It's moving. Now, this of course um, 
flies in the face, this idea of the kingdom as organic flies in the face, not just of the, the spirit of, of their day back in Israel, but also in the spirit of our day, right? Our day and age where uh, we tend to like everything uh, uh, fast, big, better, flashier, right away. I mean, don't make me wait, right? We've talked about some of this before. One of the things that I've thought about with regard to this idea of organic or not is like, have you, how many of you guys have the Costco membership? You got, you got one of those? You got to. You got to, to survive around here. You got to have, especially if you have a family with young kids. Oh my goodness. But you go into the back, right? And uh, you have those guys that are pulling out of the oven by like 20, 30, 40, 50, hundreds at a time. Those roasted chickens, right? You know what I'm talking about? Okay, listen to me. Have you not noticed how big those things are compared to the ones in like the grocery store? Like you go to the grocery store, the ones that are, they're like twice the price and they're half the size, right? And then you go into Costco and you got for five bucks, I've had, I've seen like Thanksgiving Day turkeys that are smaller than their chickens, right? And, and, and you come home with one of those, you can feed like not just your family, but the whole neighborhood. Here's where I'm going with this. If I were to take one of those, Costco chickens, drop it in front of you, and then take maybe, you know, let's go to Whole Foods, let's get us some good organic stuff, let's go to, and, and, and let's bring out that little chicken here, that this one from Whole Foods, four times the price and half the size, and you say, which one am I going to pick? Am I going to go with the bigger, the better, the cheaper, the immediate? Yes. Or am I going to go with the one that slowly grew, and that's why they're charging so much, and they fed it like, you know, whatever, you know, you know what I'm talking about. They like massaged it while it ate and, you know, stroked it. It's like, are you going to, the one that grew slowly and costs more and doesn't seem, no, it's a no-brainer, right? I'm going to grab a hold. Now, full disclaimer, I did research on this. The Costco chickens are actually pretty legit, but I didn't want it to destroy my illustration. So I'm, I'm pretending that they're full of steroids and they're full of just, they're actually pretty good, uh, all things considered. But you know where I'm going with this. Like We prefer that sort of thing. And we take those preferences into the kingdom of God. And that's what we need to understand. We want the bigger, the better, the faster, the now. We approach sanctification that way, right? Anybody out there kind of get drawn to the, man, give me five steps that will get me out of this problem. And we, we do the steps. We think, man, by the time I'm done, I got my name on a paper. They said I graduated. I, did, I still feel like the same mess. Like I thought Jesus was supposed to help me. I was supposed to be walking in freedom. I'm still struggling. What's up with that? I'll never forget hearing a um, uh, uh, pastor, well, well-known pastor by the name of John Piper talk about, I mean, this guy, was, he's now like, I think, 70-something years old. And a few years ago, he was saying, gosh, when I was a young believer, I sure thought by the time I was 70 or whatever, I would be further along in my sanctification than I am today. I, I just thought that I wouldn't still be struggling with the same issues and, 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 and getting sharp with my wife and all this. like... Why is that still a problem? And if we don't get the organic nature of the kingdom and that, that, that things are growing slowly, that Jesus never said, come to me and everything is perfect right away. But engage and daily put to death the deeds of the flesh and endure and hold on. If you get that, then you go, okay, your expectations are calibrated to his revelation. We can approach... Um, even just the churches that we uh, that we attend and things like that, uh, in the same sort of way, right? We have to admit we're drawn to kind of the bigger and the better, right? The ones that have the the big lights and not not the fluorescent things up here, and like you know the fog machines and the pastor comes out and the the the, the crowd you know goes wild and it's full. You can't even find parking, you know. And we think, man, there's life there, there's buzz there. You can feel it in the air. It's amazing. And, by all means, there, there may very well be, but bottom line, here's what we got to realize. Sometimes to get that sort of energy and activity and growth, what some of these churches will do is, let's dilute the gospel just a little. I'm going to talk about sin and hell and wrath, and uh, that's not going to go over well with the masses. So we'll talk about the grace, we'll talk about the love, we'll talk about the whatever, how God cares about your money and wants to help you with that. We'll talk about it, but wrath, cross, sin, uh, 
kind of skip on by that. So it seems like there's all this life. It seems like there's all this stuff. But what are the people gathered for? What's all the buzz about? Is the gospel actually at the center? Who cares if you can fill the pews with people and get them all excited if you're not leading them to repentance and faith, take up their cross, follow the king through thick and thin to glory? Who cares? You you see what I'm saying? Jesus will look at it and go, yeah, it looks great on the outside. I'm after the seed that's planted, the kingdom growing, gospel at work in people's hearts and lives. The kingdom of God is like that. He's telling us not to trust our instincts, not to trust our instincts of what God is in and what he isn't in, where he is and where he isn't. He's often in the mundane, the boring, the drab. He's right here doing work in this place. I think that's why he may choose the, the, the imagery for the parables that he does. So what does he choose? They're in an agrarian society like in Israel at this time. There is nothing more common and mundane than a dude planting a seed and a lady baking some bread. That's it. That's everyday stuff. And he says, that's the kingdom. I mean, they were wanting him to say, you want me to tell you what the kingdom's like? It's like when, you know, the man rolls in, I see, with his, with his sword, and it's flashing in the sun, and he's, yeah, and everyone's, you know, cheering, and he goes, no, you want to know what the kingdom's like? It's like dude planting. It's like your lady at home baking bread for the kids. Well, that sounds boring. Yeah, that's what's wrong with us. The kingdom advances in those moments. The kingdom moves like that. It's organic. Uh, I suppose this idea of the kingdom as organic and its process and things slowly developing, uh, it shouldn't surprise us. After all, we've got to consider who is the king of this kingdom, right? And we've seen his story even through Luke's gospel up to this point where, my goodness, you expect the, the grand entrance of God into humanity, into the world. Would just be this flashy, amazing thing, and instead, it's this. It's it, he's born into this poor little family in this little insignificant town in an animal's feeding trough with no one to come and celebrate except for a few shepherds. That's it. That's the entrance, and then he grows up and he continues to be rejected. People, this ain't what I expected. Can anything good come from Nazareth? Come on. This is just Joseph's boy. It's organic. Kingdom and the king. And the way he works in our lives and in our midst will be the same. Second thing that I would say regarding this kingdom that I think these, uh, this, uh, these parables bring out is that there's kind of this internal aspect to it. Uh, it's before it's ever external, before it ever has these effects on the outside, uh, the kingdom goes after internal, even what you might say invisible realities, realities of the heart. Uh, I think, again, both parables bring this out. Um, in the first, we get that idea with the idea of the seed being planted underneath the soil, right? It goes under there, you go, gosh, I sure hope something's there. We keep watering it in faith, but... Ah, sprout. You're not even still sure what that is. Maybe it's a weed until, you see what I'm saying? So there's this invisible component, this internal component. But this especially comes out in the second parable, where we're told uh, that this lady puts this yeast uh, on the inside of the flower. And and even the word used there, uh, it's taken and it's hidden in the flower. It's hidden can't see it. It's not external at first until suddenly from inside it starts to put this pressure on the outside and then you start to see the effect. And that's uh, the way that the kingdom operates. Jesus says the kingdom of God is like that. It's not fundamentally external conformity and all this stuff that you're going to see with your eyes. It's something happening on the inside man's heart. God gets a hold of, uh, of them there. And then it gets out. If the 
church could have just seen this back in the Middle Ages. Perhaps the whole spotted history of the Crusades and Holy Wars could have stopped right then, right? Like you're not going to convert people to Christianity by the sword. That's never been how his kingdom works. It's not repent or die. No, it's not going to happen that way. It's God getting in on the heart, changing you there. Oh, fine. People can learn to play a game and do the external conformity religious thing. But that's not the kingdom. As we say, the kingdom comes in. And again, this flies in the face of expectations in his day with Israel and things. And these guys, like the ruler in the synagogue there in particular, and the leaders, external conformity was everything. Jesus comes in and says, you guys just clean the cup. You're so worried about the outside of the cup. I'm going after the inside. The inside's filthy. Nobody wants to drink from that. It's gross. You don't wash it. It sparkles on the outside. There's last night's meal dried on the inside. That's nasty. That's like your heart and the kingdom of God starts there. Otherwise, it's just hypocrisy. Outside looks good. Inside's horrible. And beyond that, they were hoping, right, that, that, that the Messiah would come and he would conquer Rome and all this external stuff would happen, the land and all this. He says, no, it's first an internal reality. Spiritual stuff needs to happen. Caesar isn't your biggest issue. Stuff going on in here, how that relates to you and God. So it's internal It's internal. It's organic. It's internal. Third and last thing I'd bring out from these parables is that we see the kingdom of God is universal. It's universal in scope. Um, Both of the parables bring this one out well um, uh, as well. You you see it in the first one uh, there with the seed in the tree and the idea that, yeah, the seed is slowly growing and then it becomes this tree. And then what did you read it? The birds of the air come and nest in its branches, likely a a reference to a text in Ezekiel. Uh, I think I made note of it. Ezekiel 17, 22 to 24, where it's this prophecy about what's going to happen in Israel. And now there it says actually, uh, birds of all sorts, are going to come and nest in the branches. But you get this idea that the kingdom is growing, and then it's going to be beyond Israel. And that's what Luke will follow out in his book of Acts, right? It's going to start in Jerusalem, then go to Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth. So this kingdom is going to move and become global, universal. It's going to become way bigger than you ever even thought or could conceive. The same idea is brought out in the, the second parable. It's probably lost on us, but it's actually really interesting because uh, he talks about three measures of flour there. You go, okay, that's like what, like one cup, two cup, three cup. No, we're talking about 50 pounds of flour according to their measurements. We're talking about 50 pounds of flour. Enough to feed, they said, about 100 people. This isn't just a lady getting ready for her kids here. This is a feast. This is a banquet. This is, I think, an image that the kingdom is is going to expand. It's going to be universal. And what starts is just a little leaven over here. And what we might call Israel is going to expand through the whole thing. Permeate the whole thing. It's going to become global, universal. And like the book of Revelation would tell us, uh, around the table in the kingdom of God, in every tribe, tongue, people, nation will be represented. And it's amazing. I mean, I'm not that uh, good in terms of church history, even modern church history, but uh, I think Chris Keener actually might, if he's here, actually is amazing in terms of his knowledge of modern day missions and things like that. But I was just looking at a few things with regard to this. This is not just a fairy tale. This is not just a, a text in an ancient book. We're talking about stuff that's happening right now. Like in, I think at the, the turn of the century, back, back, or back like 1910 or so, I think they did a, kind of a survey on, on where Christianity was at at that point. It was largely just Europe, North America, maybe a little South America too. And then all of a sudden, in the last hundred years, it's exploded in the global South. And so they're just going, wow, Christianity is all over the place. There's, in fact, no way, they say now, to really locate the epicenter of it. It is a global religion, and, and it's not just because we're having babies. That's how Islam largely is growing. 
It's because people are being born again. Converted Christ. Because the kingdom is expanding. The leaven is moving. The seed is growing. And birds are nesting in the branches of this tree. It's amazing. It's amazing. But again, this is not necessarily what the leaders in Israel at the time would have expected, or at least not what they would have wanted. Certainly you can read some of these texts in the Old Testament and you go, gosh, how could they have lost sight that they're to be called, they're to be a blessing to the nations. We bless you, Abraham, to be a blessing to all the families of the earth. And they, I think probably what they started to grab a hold of is, okay, yes, we want the Gentiles to be in subjection to us. Sure, but coming in and nesting, like enjoying like chit-chatting, sharing worms or whatever, that doesn't sound good. I don't want to do that. It's unexpected. Unexpected. Now, second question. So first was just what should we expect? Now, second question that I want to ask here is why do we often push back? Um, the takeaway for us and all that I've been saying up to this point, I think simply is when we think God is not at work, not doing anything, he is more than we know. He is. His kingdom is there. My question is, is if we uh, uh, see this in the word of God, if we see that we ought to expect this sort of thing, why do we often push back against it? When we're faced again and again with that gap that forms between our expectations and reality, why do we kind of push back against God in those moments? Why don't we open up to him and go, man, okay, teach me, show me, where is your kingdom? I want to see it. I don't get it. Why instead do we go, where are you? What's your problem? Why do we grow bitter and angry and accusatory at God? Now, think with me about the uh, ruler of the synagogue back in Luke 13, in that story that we read. He's, um, again, representative of so many religious leaders in Israel in particular. But why, instead of opening to Jesus in, in that scene, why instead of opening up to him, receiving what uh, God's, man, what God is doing in him, why instead of opening to Jesus, does he push back on what he's seeing there and say, no, 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 you're an imposter. No way. Couldn't be. Why the pushback? Why the resistance? What is it? Let's think about it even deeper here because I want you to get that scene in your mind and see the insanity of it. In this synagogue, right, you've got this lady, we're told, that for 18 years has been just bent over, uh, burdened uh, uh, by Satan. Jesus rolls into this place and with a word and a touch, heals her right there in the midst of uh, this whole congregation and this ruler of the synagogue. And he sees that with his own two eyes, looks at this going down and says, what? what does the text say? He rejoices. He celebrates. He gives glory to God. No, what it actually says is that he is, verse 14, indignant. He's angry. He's all worked up. He's mad. I don't like this. You go, how did he get there? How does a person get there? What's behind that? Instead of seeing the power of God at work in Jesus here, instead of repenting, say, man, I missed it. I'm sorry. You're the one. Instead, what he actually does is he uses this miracle as an opportunity to support his claim that Jesus is an imposter. Did you catch that? He uses the supernatural miracle, the the expression of the king and his healing power. (laughs) This ruler of the synagogue goes, I knew it. No real king, uh, no real Messiah concerned for God's law would do that on the Sabbath day. God commanded on the Sabbath, we rest. We all know that must have been a lot of work. Imposter. Instead of opening, he hardens, pushes back. Why? That's my question. Why? As I considered this, two reasons came to mind, and I think they will be informative 
for us and our own struggles with uh, that gap between expectation and reality. Why does this guy double down on his claim that Jesus is not uh, the Christ, God's not at work, the kingdom is not present in him, even though he has incredible evidence to the contrary? Well, first, I think this guy doubles down and resists. Because doing so, to, to, to actually admit that Jesus is at, or that God is at work in Jesus, uh, would, would have, he'd have to face some sin in himself. It would bring him to the place, I gotta own up to some of my own junk. If I'm gonna come down from my position, have you ever been in that place, right? When you're in the argue, you're the one holding it, and you go, oh gosh, I'm wrong. To come down in the, after you've been arguing for one thing and admit wrong. Admit you don't know. Admit you're broken. Admit you're need. Face sin in you. That's not easy. The second thing that I, I would say as well is that I, I think uh, to for him to admit that God was at work, that the kingdom was there in Jesus as the Messiah. Uh, he'd have to release some plans. Some ideas he had for where his life was going to go. So think with, with me a little bit further about these two. He'd have to face some sin. He'd have to release some plans. He don't want to do that, so he doubles down on his opposition. Think with me, though, about his story there. Saying that Jesus and his message and mission is for real would mean admitting that he too needs a savior, right? It would mean admitting that um, uh, though he is a guy who kind of spent all his time in the law of God and he's even memorized and he's instructing all the people in this synagogue from the law of God, he would have to say, I've missed the heart of it. I've missed it and I see it now. He'd have to face the junk in his own heart. That's what opening up to Jesus would mean. I need a savior too. I need forgiveness too. But then secondly, I said it would mean releasing plans. Think about that. He was hoping Messiah would come again and, and, and do something with Rome and maybe set him up in some position of power and give him some worldly accolades and comfort and all that sort of stuff. And he'd have to go, man, if this is what the kingdom's like, I got to let all that go. Jesus is talking about taking up cross and following him. I got to let my plans for my life, all the ways I saw it going, I gotta lay that down. I'm gonna get on board with him. He's on his way to Jerusalem to die. Do I really want to do that? So instead of rejoicing when Jesus miraculously heals this woman, this ruler of the synagogue is indignant. He refuses to see God at work in him. And so here, here's, here's what happens. The, the, um, the gap between his expectations and reality widen. It widens. And his heart hardens. And his eyes grow blinder to the real move of God in his midst. To the real kingdom of God that is moving. He, he would rather, he would prefer his own myth that saves his self-image and his self-determining plan. Prefers his own myth to the revelation of God in the Son. I'll stay over here, even though it means I'm going to miss reality. I'm going to miss what God is really doing. At least I feel better about myself now. So we've got to think about ourselves here for a moment. I want to turn this around on us. And I know I opened up by... You know, asking if you have any of those unmet expectations, the place where the gap is kind of widening between what you hoped would be and what really is, and how are you responding there? Those places where you maybe are feeling depressed, bitter, hopeless, a little bit angry, upset, feeling like, man, I've prayed on that issue. I've quoted scripture to the air against, you know, the demons and all that that are probably doing this to me, and nothing has changed. If anything, it's just gotten worse. There's a widening gap. And stuff is starting to fester. If you have some of those things in your mind right now, I wonder, 
if you were willing to be honest and go back behind that stuff to the heart, what's going on in there? I wonder if, if we wouldn't find there's some sin that you don't want to face and admitting that God is at work even in what you don't necessarily like and didn't really want would mean you have to talk to him about some junk that you don't want to. And I wonder if you'd also find that perhaps there are plans you're not willing to trust him with. That, that, that when the unmet expectations show up, the, the, the sense is God is asking us, do you trust me? Do you trust that even though it's not what you had in the playbook, my playbook is better? You go, I don't know if I trust you. I wanted it to go X, Y, and Z. So I'll quote scripture that, that would lead me to think, that's what you're going to do. And I'm not going to let it go. I'm not going to open. I'm going to double down. Well, I will tell you something, brothers and sisters. If we grow so focused on the ways that God is not moving, if we, if we fixate on the stuff that he's not doing, we will actually miss the stuff that he really is doing. We won't be able to see the kingdom that comes in the unmet expectations as God recalibrates us to his revelation and wants us to trust him and wants us to come out with stuff that's, 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 that's yucky in us. and want, I mean, that's how the kingdom moves and we will miss it. If we're unwilling to go there and open and lay those things on the table, the train will go on without us and we'll continue to say God's not at work but it's not his fault you wouldn't get on the train the kingdom's going on you hearing that that makes sense so here's the last question I want to ask then how can we bridge the gap I, I don't want to miss it. I don't want you to miss it. I want us to see. I want us to grow uh, 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 skilled at seeing the kingdom of God in our midst. Uh, I don't want to miss this. How do we bridge the gap? When expectation is here, reality is here, How? what can we do that helps us? Obviously, I just listed a few things. The idea of, of uh, confessing sin and being willing to let God speak there and laying down plans. That's fine. I have two more suggestions. Two more practical things that will help us bridge the gap. So we can live in the reality of the kingdom of God. Instead of bitter about what it's not and what we thought it would be and what we wish it still could be. Let me show you. Suggestion number one. Um, read your Bibles. You gotta know that's coming, right? Read your Bibles. I mean, that's a good application point for any sermon. But I'll tell you why that's particularly relevant to this one. Um, Romans 15:4, Paul writes this: Whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures we might have hope. Paul is saying that when you read the scripture, the scriptures were written to help you endure, to help you keep going, to help you have hope in the midst of hardship, when in the middle of that gap, to help you war for faith, trust, joy in God instead of turning towards bitterness. How this works out, I mean, if you have read through your Bibles, here's what you come to realize. This sort of thing unmet expectations plays out again and again and again in the narrative of scripture i mean that's what's always happening the people are expecting one thing god is doing something else they're grumbling and bitter and angry at him but really we know from our vantage point god is doing so much better for them than they could even realize and if you sit in that position in your study in the morning, whatever, with your coffee by your side, and you're reading the scriptures and you're getting a sense of the heart of God, you go, wow, that's me. I'm saying, where are you? And I'm looking at these guys and, and I can see right where you are. In my own life, I get disoriented, but here I see it. You're moving. You're, the kingdom is working. The seed is becoming a tree. The leaven is permeating. The do- I get it. And it helps. It gives hope. It gives strength. It helps you endure. Helps bridge the gap. 
I mean, of course, the, the clearest example that we could give, I mean, this is all throughout the Old Testament. You think of Israel in the wilderness. Think of all the things that went down when they actually were in the land and they were still upset. But you think especially as we come to the New Testament of Jesus and the cross, do you not? I mean, this is it for us. This is the pinnacle for us. And it's, it, 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 it's, it's yet another just unmet expectation playing out under glory, glorious ends. So Jesus' life doesn't just start bad. It doesn't just start uh, kind of low and then end awesome, right? At least on earth, right? It's, it starts bad. And if you read Philippians 2, it just kind of gets worse. It's like the spiraling staircase going down. He's born. He, he, he's born in, in um, uh, I can't think of the word, but he, he's born in inconspicuous circumstances. And then he just kind of, it just gets worse. He gets, you know, bound and. Captive, captured, and he gets taken and whipped and mocked and shamed and embarrassed in front of everyone and ultimately killed. And his whole ministry, I'm the Messiah, I'm the King, I'm the one. And you remember the two on the road to Emmaus, right? You remember this conversation, perhaps it's near the end of Luke's gospel. They're walking by after they'd just seen the crucifixion. They watched his body perhaps be put behind the stone. They go, that's it. Seal the book. It's over. We thought he was going to do something big here in Rome. We, we, we had our chips placed in on him to the very last minute. And I guess, goodness gracious, it's done. We're the fools for trusting him. And in that gap between what they expected and reality, depression Sorrow began to form. But here's the question that we have to ask, and here's the question that that that, that story presses in on us. In those moments, as we're looking at these two on the road to Emmaus, is God doing less than they expected or more? So we get the vantage point on the other side of the cross and the resurrection thanks to the scriptures and our reading and and studying of them. We get the vantage point that says, oh my goodness, he's doing so much more. In fact, we're prone to go, those two guys are idiots. Why can't they say they're talking to Jesus? The resurrected Jesus is right there. Man, these fools, what's wrong with them? Jesus is doing so much more. He's not just taking down Rome. He's taking down Satan, sin, and death, the real enemies. Being put under his feet. Wow. And then suddenly we step back and go, gosh, again, that's, that's where I go in that gap. Where are you, God? What's your deal? I thought you were the one. I thought you were going to, I guess you're not here for me. He's not doing less in those moments, brothers and sisters. He's doing more. The kingdom hasn't stalled out. It's advancing. The question is whether you're willing to see it. Whether you're open to God, correct me, show me. I must have had a different idea. What are you doing here? Second suggestion that I'll give you, and this is where we'll close. How do we bridge the gap? Name your struggle. Okay, this is a personal uh, personal one for me. Um, but name your struggle. I want this church to hear me say this, and I want to say it again and again and again. Um, I think sometimes, though we like to say the church is a safe place and all this, I think sometimes the church can be a very frightening place for people to be real, for people to be honest, for people to talk about the gap that exists between what they expected and wanted and dreamed of and what really is in their life. I think that what happens is, this is my read on the situation. As Christians, we have high standards. Doctrinally, we have high standards morally. Okay, That's good. We absolutely want those high standards. We don't just want to wash all that away so we can be a loving community. High standards, but here's the problem. A lot of times, we don't pursue those high standards with, with an atmosphere of grace surrounding it. A lot of times what happens is because we have such high standards, we got all these doctrines and these things and all these moral stuff, we're scared to open up about the fact that I don't know if I'm trusting that doctrine right now. 
or I, I'm struggling with this sin over here right now. We, we get scared to open up in this place because we have high standards. If I tell them that, they're going to reject me. And sometimes, you know what, churches do that. And they forsake the heart of God and of Christ. I mean, even in the text that we're going to look at next week, he's just pleading with Israel. You have no idea, Israel, how long I have longed like a hen for her chicks just to bring you in. Like, is that our heart for struggling people? Like, we're going to come around you. We're not going to point fingers and jab our, you know, jab our hands in your wounds. So what happens in that sort of environment? People do struggle with unmet expectations. They do wrestle in war in the gap there. But instead of naming it, instead of being honest with the church, and sometimes even with God, feeling like I can't tell even God about this. It's unholy. It's not, it's not okay. I'm, you know, a sinner and I shouldn't be saying these things. Instead of naming it, we fake it. We learn to fake it. We learn to come in and put on our Sunday best, not just our clothes, but our smile, our face, and our, use our Sunday words. I'm blessed, bro. Blessed. Right? And we fake it until finally that gap grows so large that it threatens to swallow us up and we just explode. And in a moment of rare honesty, we're now willing to say, gosh, this is what I feel, except now it's not to get prayer. It's not to invite in co-travelers who want who will help and come around you and wrestle with you in that place of, of, of unmet expectations. Now it's just to say, I tried the church. It doesn't work. I tried God and his kingdom. It doesn't work. I'm out. And I'm here to tell you, I think the problem in those situations is not uh, it's not with the reality of unmet expectations and things. It's in the way that we handle it. That we felt like we couldn't share it, we couldn't speak it. But all throughout the scriptures, all throughout the scriptures, read the Psalms. I mean, it's incredible. God is inviting us to come and name the struggle, name the burdens, name the stuff that we feel in the gap between what we hoped and what is. Bring it to him, talk to him about it. Perfect example, this is where I'll close if you're worried, is John the Baptist. Perfect example of this. I just read a a blog post this last week and the the author was talking about how we shouldn't doubt and struggle away from God, but rather towards him. Do you hear that? You come towards him with it. This is what John the Baptist does. There is probably no bigger gap that could have existed between who the Messiah was and what someone thought he would be than with John. I mean, I think this is why John is, he's almost like egging on the Pharisees, right? At the beginning there, when they come to be baptized, and he goes, you brood of vipers. He's, he's like this bolt, you can't stop the guy. He, he's like, basically, he's like a little chihuahua barking because he knows there's a Rottweiler that's got his back. Like, he's talking like that because he knows the Messiah is here. His winnowing fork is in his hand. The axe is in his hand. He's going to take care of business. I can talk how I want. My, 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 my Savior's got my back. And then he's sitting in Herod's dungeon. Waiting for Blade to find his neck. And he, he's struggling with the gap. So here's my question. What does he do? What does he do in those moments? Gosh, I'm a prophet. <laughs> God was talking about me back in the Old Testament. Here I am. I definitely can't name my struggle. I can't admit that I don't understand how this is all going to play out, that I'm confused, that I expected one thing and it's actually another. I can't say that. No, he doesn't. He doesn't fake it. He names it. He sends, he struggles and doubts towards Jesus, towards God. He sends his friends to go talk to Jesus, say, are you the one or not? You say, that's offensive. No, it's not. That's faith. He's struggling towards the Messiah, not away. Are you the one or not? What does Jesus say in response? Does he rebuke? No. He says, okay, I get it. It's confusing. Go reread the scriptures in light of what I've done. God will open your eyes. And he doesn't, he doesn't rebuke. In fact, what he does is he commends to all those listening, do you remember that? He says, man, among those born of women, there's none greater than John. I love that man. I said, how could you talk about 
Where's your faith? We got standards up here. You're way down here. You're supposed to be a prophet. No, he said, I love that man. He came to me. He struggled towards me with unmet expectations. We can bridge the gap that way. I want to be a church like that so badly. Well, we could talk about the stuff that's not lining up. Be real. And we can walk together on this journey towards glory. We can look for the kingdom together. It's here. Maybe seed, maybe sapling, maybe hidden, but it's here. Let's pray. God, thank you. Thank you for serving us so well that even though there's plenty that was made plain about your will and your ways in the Old Testament, you still came and with guys that were refusing to see it, you tried to help them again. You spoke about the kingdom and helped to see the nature of it. You helped clarify. And God, if we're honest, I'm sure there are a lot of us in that place here this morning. That's what it means to be on this side of heaven, in my opinion. That's why we need the scriptures to give us hope. It's because we're so prone to be hopeless. We're so prone to not get it. I know we're in this place, Lord, and I, I trust that in these moments you help us. Help us bridge the gap. Help us to, to, to lay down our, our, our self-respecting pride. Lay down our, our, our plans. God, you are the one that forms reality. You are the one that identifies uh, the, the plan. You're the one that we need. If we open up to you in, this moment, in these moments, we will see your kingdom come. So we invite you to do that, Jesus. Please let your kingdom come. Amen.